Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Uh, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. And today we have a special guest with us, Dr. James Dolzell of Karen University. He's coming to us from Pennsylvania. Uh, good morning, Dr. Dolzell. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, so before we get into our discussion on uh, the doctrine of God, can you give us a little bit of a background on yourself? Right. I'm an associate professor in the School of Divinity at Cairn University. This is a school uh, just north of Philadelphia and have uh, been there since 2013, teaching uh, theology and philosophy, uh, mostly theology. And uh, prior to that was at uh, Westminster Seminary uh, in Philadelphia. And long before that was pastoring a Reformed Baptist church in southern Alberta. Uh, and I oh, live wow. in Pennsylvania with my wife and three children. So that's so are the, you that's from the Canada originally? No, I'm a I'm a California native uh, oh, originally, okay. uh, and uh, was uh, for a couple of years in in Alberta and then Pennsylvania for the last uh, 15 years. Okay, so, wow, been all over the place. <laughs> that's that's us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so. It, you know, one of the, the reason we're talking today, we're talking on the doctrine of God, and, and I think this has been uh, kind of your forte um, as you've come on the scene. So uh, in your book that you've written, um, All That Is In God, um, you know, yeah, that was not choreographed. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> um, but you've written on the topic of the doctrine of God, particularly in this book. Uh, what sparked your interest on in the topic of the doctrine of God? Why did you want to um, deal with this topic especially? Uh, I, I suppose my interest was peaked uh, even as a college student in the 90s. Uh, at that time, uh, the theological topic that was sort of all, all the rage and getting a lot of attention was open theism. Uh, mm. And uh, and really in the, in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, that was uh, sort of a, a raging battle within, even with a conservative-ish, Bible-believing end of American evangelicalism. And so just that was what was in the air. And uh, I was in college and was a biblical studies major. And so uh, it, it immediately uh, grabbed my interest. I had a, I had a pastor uh, in Los Angeles who um, r really uh, the importance of getting clear on some of these issues uh, and, and being decisive about them. And so that really is what, what sparked the interest. And of course, the topic at the time was uh, the question of immutability, uh, but also um, omniscience. Uh, and so does God exhaustively know the future uh, may have been the more presenting issue. And then underneath of that uh, was the question of whether God was mutable. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was that's what brought me into it. And so people like um, People like Bruce Ware uh, and John Frame on the American side were really um, were really addressing and and combating the open theists, um, the kind of Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, um, uh, Greg Boyd on the other side. Um, and so I, I I I was a committed Calvinist, and I settled on that end of the spectrum uh, at that time. It was just a few years after that, two thousands. Uh, studying at Westminster Seminary with Carl Truman, that I think my interest kind of um, turned, a, stayed in the same vein, but sort of turned the corner somewhat. It was in a it was in a course with Carl Truman on John Owen, 
in which um, he was talking about John Owen as a classical theist. Uh, and people hadn't really been using that that kind of language. Now it's kind of in circulation and people talk this way. Um, but it, it wasn't so much at that time. And he was presenting Owen as a classical theist and even a Catholic, as uh, how he described Owen, um, a Catholic. And I thought, well, Owen's a Congregationalist minister. And if anyone's reformed, <laughs> but his point obviously was... Um, creedally orthodox um, in keeping with the with the ecumenical creeds of the, the ancient church and that he was a Catholic theologian in that sense of broadly broadly orthodox and he manifested his Catholic his Catholic credentials by combating um, 17th century biblicists like the Sistinians who put their biblicism in a patently heretical direction and anyhow that was all very interesting to me and it didn't surprise me. I knew a bit of Owen before that. Um, it was when, uh, so so anyway, in kind of, I, I don't know, maybe he was riffing off of that, and Truman went into a discussion about um, doctrine of God and potential, you know, hot spots and even potential areas of heresy now. And of course, open theism kind of came up because we were all just living in the immediate aftermath of that debate. And, uh, and uh, Truman made a re remark about um, Thomas Wynandy, um, and Thomas Wynandy is a Capuchin friar, um, current uh, modern uh, contemporary theologian, and he made a statement that if you really wanted to see the best historic Orthodox response to open theism, that you probably wouldn't look first at someone like Ware or um, John Frame, but that perhaps you should read Thomas Wynandy, and as as sort of the orthodox response to open theism and i thought to myself well, i don't know if you know carl truman but uh truman truman likes to be provocative and uh that was provocative to me i thought there's no way this uh that this um capuchin friar is better on this than a five-point calvinist baptist like where or someone like that uh and so uh so he was recommending his book does god suffer uh, which is directly focused on impassibility. But underneath that, it gets into some kind of metaphysical underpinnings like questions of pure actuality. Um, is God is God himself susceptible to causal operations upon him? Can God be actualized by an agent operating so as to produce some state of being in God? And Wayne Andy not only said no, he's not susceptible to that, but he also he also kind of rehabilitated the the medieval framework for explaining why that absolutely cannot be the case, and why in fact God can't be composed of act and passive potency, and in fact is pure act. And it turns out that that component of of Wayne Andy's presentation was precisely what was missing in the. Um, conservative response to open theism that you would have found in someone like Frame or Ware. Um, Frame and Ware were both open to, um, no pun intended, open theism, but they were both open to the idea that God could in fact be the receiver of causal operations upon himself. And of course, their way to sort of shore that up was by saying, but it's okay. He has sovereignly elected and chosen to be so causally affected by his creatures. And I don't think I immediately came to that conclusion or connected those dots in the aftermath of uh, Truman's course. I just went about reading Wayne Andy, and, and it probably took me uh, the next decade to kind of wrestle through it and realize that, in fact, what Wayne Andy was offering was probably something much closer to what the 17th century Reformed 
Orthodox would have said, uh, and rather different than the sort of, um, I'll say, the, the Crossway Books version of um, anti-open theism uh, that I had been reading up to that point. So anyway, that's a little bit of background. That's kind of what brought me in and got the juices stirring. Um, the open theism debate, but then, but then Truman kind of pushing me to something more um, 17th century or even 13th century uh, by suggesting I, that we read Wynandy. That sounds, that sounds like uh, Brother Truman being his specialty is church history, pushing you constantly in that direction. Um, so would you say that your book, All That Is In God, is really a response to those things that were coming out at the time? Uh, yeah, it's not a, it's not a response that I necessarily intended to write. Uh, this, th it really is just the, um, the product of some talks given in conference, uh, Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference in 2015. And my mm -hmm. assignment was to speak on, uh, certain features of Second London Confession Chapter 2 on theology proper. Uh, and so I decided to use it as an opportunity to connect some of the dots on the incompatibility of classical theism with several of the kind of mainstream propositions currently held by, I don't know, maybe most Calvinists, uh, which is strange because Calvinists are supposed to hold reformed confessions. I think that's the idea. <laughs> <Right>. And it <laughs> occurred to me that that wasn't the case. And I thought this would be a good opportunity. I I had not really done anything polemical, uh, at least on that front. And I, I don't know that I was very strategic about it. But I just thought this is something that needs to be said. Uh, a few people agreed. I think we need to connect the dots on sort of where we're failing on this currently. Uh, this is for pastors who need to do a good job uh, maintaining mm -hmm. the confession. And it, part of that is to be aware of um, sort of where the where the difficulties lie within our own circles. And so I didn't spend as much time uh, in the conference or necessarily in the book uh, talk, talking about people like Jürgen Moltmann um, or or even Karl Barth, um, who I think is closer to orthodoxy than Moltmann. Um, I didn't spend as much time on that because I didn't think that that was the area where those pastors were um, most susceptible to influence. I think where they were most susceptible to influence is reading people like Ware or Frame or or Scott Oliphant or or frankly uh, J.I. Packer, um, whom hmm. I love. I love the works of Packer for many reasons, but he's not um, particularly good on theology proper. Um, he's mm. good on sovereignty, but he makes sovereignty yes. fill in the void of his uh, existence and attributes uh, doctrine, uh, which I think is, is, is problematic. Mm. So that, and, that's where the book, oh, the book emerged from that. Uh, Richard Barcellus came and said, you know what, I think you need to put some footnotes mm. and put that into literary form and see if somewhere, you know, see if you can put it somewhere. And Reformation Heritage was uh, kind to pick that up. Okay. Well, that leads us so into the genesis our, of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that actually leads us into our next question on what divine simplicity is and uh, uh, theology proper, um, I guess. When, where do we find this doctrine biblically? Well, let me get to the um, let me get to motives of it first. Maybe maybe just stipulate really quickly what it is and then kind of get and then I think that'll be clear why Scripture demands it. Um, sure. Divine simplicity, uh, most simply, uh, is the claim that God is without parts. Um, and then, of course, the question immediately comes 
of what constitutes a part. Um, and uh, I think for us moderns who tend to think in terms of material bits, the first thing we think of is, is that God doesn't have a body part. So if you look at the Second London Confession or the Westminster or the 39 Articles of, of Religion from the Anglicans, it just says God is without body parts or passions. Uh, but when they say parts, they mean more than just simply immaterial. Um, uh, they, they mean parts of, of all sorts, um, physical and metaphysical. Um, and so before we even say what parts are, um, I think we need to say something about um, why things composed of parts, uh, what is it about a thing composed of parts that is just unacceptable for the biblical um, God, for the creator of all things? And it really comes down to this. Um, things composed of parts depend upon principles, agents, more fundamental in being than themselves. Uh, and that's really it. Everything composed of parts is doubly dependent. It's dependent on every part, uh, and every part contributes uh, some kind of is or actuality of being or um, or at least a state of being. It's a principle of being, if you can think about it like that. And if you want to think about it in an older way, um, it's a cause of being. Every part causes something to be in the whole. Uh, and and you could you could run that through every composite entity you can imagine, which is to say everything not God and, and realize that that's the case. All those parts are units of being, um, principles of being, causes of being that cause wholes to be as they are. And, and you know, we can we can negotiate whether some of those parts are essential or, un, or inessential. Um, that, I have a, that I have a soul is essential to me being a human. Um, and so my soul is a part of me. It's not the whole of me. My matter is also a, a principle of my being. Um, but so those so those parts, matter and soul, or matter and form, are essential to me. And then there are other parts of me that aren't essential, like um, the state of being seated is an easy one. You can see that on the screen. I'm being I'm seated, so that's a state of being. I am really in the state of sitting. It's it's a position and it's a posture which I currently have. Um, and yet, if I stand up, I'm not going to lose anything essential to myself. I'm still going to be just as much human as when I'm sitting. And so some parts are essential. You know, if you don't have them, you aren't. Um, and then other parts are inessential. Um, if you have them, you have something you wouldn't have without them. But if you lose them, you're still going to be sort of the substance that you are and essentially, you know, um, unaffected. Um, and so some parts are essential. Some parts are inessential. But here's the thing about parts. Every single part contributes something not identical with the whole upon which the whole depends in order to be as it is. So if God is the, ab and this kind of gets into the biblical rationale of this, um, if God is the absolute primal cause of being, the absolute first cause, the one from whom, Romans eleven thirty six, the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, um, and the one by whom all things were made, and the one without which nothing, and the one who is the maker of all, but in no way made to be, all, those are all just basic biblical affirmations, um, then partlessness follows as a necessary implicate. Um, he just couldn't be any of those things the Bible claims he is if opposed of parts. The set, so he would be dependent upon parts. And by the way, parts are not identical with holes. Um, so I don't know, I'm wearing this fleece and it has a zipper and the zipper is a part of the hole and it contributes a certain um, operation and functionality uh, to this garment that the garment would lack without it. And so um, the, the overall completeness and perfection of my fleece depends upon the zipper, but a zipper isn't a fleece. And, and so you can kind of, you can see that the totality, the whole, the perfection of the whole depends upon bits that aren't the whole. Um, that's true whether you're talking about 
material entities um, or even immaterial entities like an angel. Um, an angel um, depends upon its essence, but it also depends also on an act of existence. So in other words, it's not the nature of an angel to be. The nature of angels have being, but that being, it's not because an angel is an angel that it exists. It's because it has existence. So even if you broke it down to that level, compositeness, the second dependency would be um, whatever funds or supplies unity to the parts. So like, for instance, my fleece, just to pick that because it's it's easy. Um, my fleece depends upon all the material bits that go into it. And every one of those material bits is a causal principle, is a causal foundation for the actuality of the fleece, the composite whole. But there's something more than that. Something also had to, it, it's not just that it has the bits, all the are together that kind of they're woven and they're knitted and probably there's probably some sophisticated glue going on inside of here to keep the zipper apparatus connected and some stitching and and you see that there aren't just parts but there are parts that are together in a unity and so that the parts require also something to fund that unity something to put them together um so that everything composed of parts depends in a twofold way. It depends upon its parts as so many causes of its being. And it also depends upon an agent that imposes unity upon the parts or a composer. Uh, to the question of how does the Bible fund this, I think the most... Um, the most explicit way uh, or, or the most the clearest route to this biblically is the doctrine of absolute primal causality. If God were composed of parts, he just would not be the first cause of all being because he would be caused A, by his parts and B, by whatever funded unity to them. And so I, it's kind of a ever heard of the doctrine of simplicity or not. Um, it, that, that's not really the issue. The issue is, um, do you believe that God is the absolute uncaused first cause of all things? And if you believe that, and you believe that because you could get to that conclusion through natural theology, you could also get to that conclusion just by reading your Bible. However you get to that conclusion, if you believe that that's the case, then you also need to believe, whether you think it through, through them or not, you also need to believe all those things that necessarily must be the case in order for that basic thing to be true. And so if your understanding of the divine nature or the divine being, for instance, um, turns out to be reducible to a caused entity, then you have to deny that um, just for God to continue um, being what the Bible requires him to be, um, the absolute primal first cause of all things. If God is the absolute first cause of all things, and, then, and yet it turns out that in his very being and existence and essence that he is caused to be by principal parts or by a composer, then it turns out um, that A, he's either not the first cause of all being, and this isn't the God you should be worshiping at all, um, or he isn't really composed of parts. Uh, and the Christian tradition is in its affirmation um, that he's not composed of parts. So I, I guess that's kind of the core of it. Whether you've heard of divine simplicity or, or actuality or passive potency or all the kind of sophisticated terminology that has emerged to defend this doctrine, the, the heart and soul of it is this. Do you believe that something not God is the causal account of God? And if your answer to that is no, and I think most Christians, and I'm going to say, um, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the average Christian in the pew. I think the average Christian in his heart of hearts believes that what is not God doesn't make God be. 
If that's the case, then you're already committed to divine simplicity and the rest is just details. Divine simplicity mm -hmm. is just uh, an elaborate scheme. And I, I call it a scheme, uh, not in the negative sense, but it's, it's a good scheme. It's a scheme that is, does a lot of good work. It's just, an, it's just a sophisticated way of elaborating and protecting that basic Christian conviction. Um, and I think that's why this doctrine historically has not been some piece of um, exotic sectarian minutia, uh, but it has really been um, just kind of bread and butter, butter orthodoxy. And you'll find affirmations of now. I'm not suggesting that everybody who's ever held the doctrine um, has been um, equally clear or adept um, at defending it and articulating it at every point you might be tempted to give it up. Like I'll, I'll go on the record and say, and those who know my work won't be surprised. Um, I think Thomas Aquinas is a much better and sophisticated defender of divine simplicity than like say um, Gregory of Nyssa uh, in the fourth century. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say that. I think that there are, I think that there are some weak spots uh, in witnesses um, explanation that you don't find uh, in Aquinas's explanation. But I think at the, at the end of it, all of them, though, are broadly committed to this idea that God is not susceptible to causes or um, principles of being more fundamental than himself and therefore uh, is not composed of parts. And that's why everybody everywhere believes it. And I mean, Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Anglicans, um, Ortho Orthodox Lutherans, um, uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Franciscans and Dominicans alike, uh, and then also Eastern Orthodox, like John of Damascus or Pseudo Dionysius. I mean, just everybody everywhere until you know. And then there's then then there's kind of the modern age in which we've begun to lose hold of this doctrine for various reasons. And then you get to someone like um, Bruce Ware, who thinks that there are actualities of being in God which aren't identical with the divine essence, um, like states of emotion and feeling that are produced in God by creatures upon Him. That are real states of being in God that aren't identical with the divine essence. So then you get to your modern conservatives, uh, and the doctrine is conspicuously absent um, or misunderstood. I, I don't know, you know, one of those. Yeah, I think that's a you. I think you hit the nail on the head with regards to. Most Christians probably understand and believe these basic tenets. You know, we believe that God is eternal. We believe that God created all things and that nothing existed before that. Um, I think that's my story as well. Before coming to the doctrine of divine simplicity, I confessed all these things, but I didn't understand the implications of them. And I think that is where the danger, I think, tends to be when you start really working through the implications and then people take them in different directions to fit whatever theological system they might have, even though they confess the core doctrine. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that, um, for instance, I'll just pick J.I. Packer. Um, there's no, there's no way that J.I. Packer, uh, now with the Lord, um, but when he was writing these works, I, it's just inconceivable to me that he might be thinking to himself, you know, <clears throat> I think something not God caused him to be. I really mm -hmm. think that's it. Just that's absolutely inconceivable to me. And I'm not suggesting, um, for a moment, um, that Packer ever believed such a thing. Mm. What I am suggesting, though, is the way that he accounts for divine attributes and divine actuality um, leads to precisely that conclusion. And mm. I think that there's I, and, and I and I'm uh, I'm happy to say, as there is somewhere in all of us, I'm, I'm happy to say that I think that that's just an inconsistency. Um, mm. and, and I suppose in the order of, of, you know, greater and lesser evils, um, I'd rather he be inconsistent uh, then consistent and say, yeah, something not God made him be. Um, uh, mm. But even better than that, I'd rather he just, uh, 
I would that he had rather just clearly confess the doctrine of simplicity and not explain God as susceptible to causes operating upon him and actualizing things in him. Um, I, I mean, that would have been more preferable, but you know, it, yeah, it is it, what it is. And it shows it, it shows the importance of being precise in our language about God, even though we can't fully capture who God is in our language. Yeah, none of this. It's funny because none of this is comprehension. Um, I think it's I think it's um, right and it and it's compelling uh, and it's believable, but it's not comprehensible in the sen- in the sense that um, I know why God must not be composed of parts um, because there would be no first cause of being if He were. Uh, and there has to be a first cause of being that accounts for why there's a world rather than not. Um, and that first cause of being has to be its own reason for being. Um, but if it were composed of parts, it just wouldn't be. Um, so I know why. I mean, I understand biblically and in terms of natural theology why this must be confessed. But I'm not saying that I that I have formed a kind of um, one-to-one conception of it. I haven't captured it in a concept. I've articulated it in a confession, a confession that I think does a good job kind of keeping keeping idolatry at bay um, mm-hmm. at least doctrin- at least doctrinally if not practically um, but I don't but I don't comprehend what I know um, I, I know mm. I know why it's true I believe it but I don't have like a one-to-one correspond so like you could say it like this like all of my thoughts about simplicity um, are in fact um, more or less composite <laughs> right so like yeah. even my way of thinking like even the statement God is simple, is a non-simple predication about simplicity because um, you have you have God uh, as the subject, you have simple as the predicate, and you've got is as a copula joining the two, and so you've got this three you've got this three part statement about partlessness, and I think that's kind of it's not just that way in my language; it's actually that way in my mind before I say it that way in my mm-hmm. language. But I also know, even while I say that, even while I say God is simple, I know that my my non-simple thought about simplicity is actually not um, modally in sync, if I can say it like that, um, with the <laughs> thing that I believe. It's kind of like infin- infinity is probably easier. I just say, look, I've, I believe God is infinite, but I don't have an infinite thought of the infinite. I have a finite mm. thought of the infinite. And as long as, we, as long as we're alert to this um, vast incommensurability between the manner of God's being and the manner of our thoughts about his being, as long as we're alert to that and we're, and we're making sure that we don't start taking our, um, our thoughts of the manner of our God thoughts or the manner of our God talk, and then making that a kind of um, ontological model for the manner of his being and then projecting it onto him. As long as we do that, as long as we don't take human God talk as a direct map to the manner of divine subsisting or being, um, then I think we're okay. I, I think we can avoid. I think we can avoid big errors. I think what we tend to do, at least in a lot of modern theology, is we tend to think that the manner of our thinking is, in fact, a kind of one-to-one map to the manner of the of the being of the thing about which we're thinking. And uh, you know, I grant that that's probably um, generally the case uh, with created finite things. My created finite multipart thoughts do tend to sync up nicer with created finite multipart beings than they do with an uncreated non-multipart infinite being. Um, as long as we're alert to that, I think we can we can kind of proceed with caution. So moving on a little bit. Um... How is the doctrine of the Trinity to be understood in light of divine simplicity? Um, because at least on the surface, it would seem to imply that God is complex in some way. And I can say right. that at least for myself, th- that initially gave me a little bit of trouble because I did 
come from more of the understanding that God was complex in a sense, or God could change. Um, and it was actually your book that really uh, helped me uh, work through some of those issues. So how would you address that concern? Yeah, I think I think we need to um, use simplicity as a rule. In other words, if simplicity isn't so, no God. Uh, I think where Ed Fazer says, you know, no simplicity, um, atheism. <laughs> that's kind of your, so if, if we can kind of see that that's what's at stake, um, then I think the first thing we say when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity is, um, how, however I'm going to articulate this revealed mystery um, of the Trinity, um, it's not going to be in a way that undoes the doctrine of simplicity. I'm not going to explain the Trinity at the expense of theism. Okay, uh, that's I mean, so I think that's kind of a, and I think that's the case. Uh, if you go to the fourth century where the great Trinitarian debates are raging, um, it's interesting. Both the Orthodox and the heretics, the Arians in particular, um, are, are are kind of of a mind on this that um, whatever, however we end up here, um, divine the loss of divine simplicity is just not a, is just not an option in the end. Um, the what what it does for what it does as a if you can think of this as a as a principle for doing Trinitarian theology, um, I think the first thing it does is it, it rules out certain explanations of the distinction of the persons. Um, so Trinitarian doctrine, the the real challenge of the Trinitarian doctrine is that Scripture requires us uh, to not natural theology, but Scripture requires us to recognize that there are three who are distinct, who are the one God. Um, and so you have to kind of hold together a couple different strands here. You have to hold together a doctrine of divine unity, which includes um, exclusivity and simplicity. In other words, there's one God, not many, and the one God isn't composed of parts. That in, in, in any Trinitarian theology, that has to be a non-negotiable operating principle. The second demand, and, and you can get that from Scripture or from natural theology, but the second demand comes only from Scripture, that Scripture identifies three who are distinct as this one God. And so the challenge is going to be in locating and characterizing those distinctions so as not to result in a multiplication of divine beings, then the unity of exclusivity or singularity, and then God would just become a kind of like a class term. Term, a genus um, populated by three particular beings. Um, and that's just called polytheism, and that's not what we are. Um, in other words, to hold on to your monotheism, however you articulate the three who are God, it can't be three gods. Um, and we do say that there are three who are God. We just say that these three are not three gods. Um, three who are God, but one God. Um, and so it, it's going to have to be articulated in a way that doesn't multiply the divine essence into a series of distinct beings. It's also going to have to be articulated in a way in which the persons are not three parts of God. And so whatever we're going to say about the three, and we're, we're going to need to establish a real distinction among them, we're going to have to do it in a way that doesn't result in three divine substances, that's polytheism, or... Um, tripartitism um, or parthood, that is to say, a composite a composite being. Um, and I think that's the challenge. In other words, um, that's what the Trinitarian theologian needs to do. He, and he doesn't need to necessarily get, I want to be more modest about this. He doesn't need to give an explanation of these things. He just simply needs to give enough of an account of the distinction of the persons to establish, A, that they're really distinct, B, that it doesn't multiply the divine substance, uh, and C, it doesn't divide the divine substance into parts. 
if he can do that, even if it leaves you with a lot of intellectual questions or a lot of intellectual strangeness um, or leaves you in mystery, um, I, I don't see why that's problematic if you think the Trinity is a mystery. If you think the Trinity is a mystery only initially that needs to be explained in a way um, that sort of answers um, every rational objection that you might raise, um, again, I, all I think you need to do is show that the rational objections um, aren't necessary. Um, and if the, the if the Trinitarian theologian can do that, then his job as a theologian uh, is done, and he's okay confessing mystery um, as long as it's not um, into intellectual um, nonsense. So, uh, so the, the first thing the Trinitarian theologian says when he comes to the doctrine is, whatever I'm going to say about the distinction of the three, it's not going to be three divine beings. Um, uh, or three divide, three primary substances, and it's not going to be three parts of the one being. And I think that's the challenge. Um, a lot of modern Christians will talk about the, the three persons who are distinct from each other and who are God as the three beings who are God. Um, divine simplicity s demands that you, you stop doing that immediately. Um, the second thing is we will sometimes describe them as three parts of God. Divine simplicity demands also that you stop doing that immediately. Um, we don't want to think of God as the consequent of one portion father, one portion son, one portion spirit, get them together, um, and then, you know, Yahweh. Um, or to put it a little more whimsically, um, one part father, one part son, one part spirit, shake well, and then the tasty concoction that comes out of that is, you know, Yahweh, the God of all creation. Um, we don't want to think of we don't want to think of the unity of the divine being as a consequent of the composition of things not identical with itself and more fundamental than itself. That might sound crazy to people. Like, who would say that? But, I mean, modern evangelicals in very conservative institutions say that. I mean, Jay Moreland and William Lane Craig say that there's mm -hmm. a part-whole relationship of the persons uh, to uh, to the divine being. Um, and so that kind of stuff is, is in the air and it's in circulation. Simplicity says that you can't say that. Um, what you're going to have to do, and this gets just much more elaborate, is in, in a more thorough account than you're going to have to explain how you can have distinctions that don't constitute um, parts, um, that aren't composed of substance and accident. Um, and there are several, um, without getting too far in the details, there are, there are ways to do that um, that I think are um, satisfactory, um, e even if peculiar and unlike um, other explanations you might give uh, regarding composite entities. Um, but I do think that that's, that's sort of the basic concern when it comes to the Trinity. How do you have, how do you have um, three who are distinct without three parts or three beings? Um, and that's, that's the work of Trinitarian theology. Hmm. And, 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 and critics a, can judge whether well, that was done well or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, I think when you talk about, uh, what not to say. It, it, it's almost like we're trying to go around and say, well, this is what you're not to say about God. We can't necessarily say positively everything about him, but we, this is what you're not to say about him. It's almost like the process of elimination to preserve us from going down rabbit holes that we shouldn't um, in our own finite minds. There's a statement that um, uh, Stephen Charnock makes, and I think he's, I think he's just... Um, taking this from John of Damascus, uh, where he says um, the, uh, of God, though we cannot comprehend him as he is, let us be careful not to fancy him to be what he is not. 
Mm. And uh, in Trinitarian theology, there are certain things we need to say. We need to say positive. We need to say, well, it's negative. We need to say the Father is not the Son or Spirit. The Son is not the Father or Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or Son. We need to say those things. We need to say positively, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. We need to say um, negatively and not three gods. Um, uh, And so... What simplicity does, uh, together with a biblical record uh, locating uh, distinction of persons, and by the way, if you want to know, for those uh, listeners or viewers who want to know where that distinction lies, it's in relations of origin. Um, It's in relations of origin. If relations of origin do not constitute the actualization of passive potency, and they don't, um, if relations of origin do not result in a partition of the divine being, and they don't, um, if uh, relations of origin uh, can can be a, a, accounted for in a way that doesn't inc- inqui- require a, a time component, and they can be characterized that way, then uh, and if re- if or if uh, relations of origin and the relations that re- that you know are consequent of those paternity, filiation, inspiration can be understood, but not to be um, accidents. That is to say, the fa- the person of the father isn't someone who has paternity. I have three children. I have the relation of paternity to my children, but that paternity doesn't constitute me as a human person. Like I was a human person before I had any children. Um, whereas in the Godhead, the relations don't just characterize or qua- they don't characterize or qualify the persons. They constitute the persons. Um, divine simplicity is actually um, not just it doesn't just cohere with those doctrines. I would actually argue that divine simplicity is largely responsible for driving those historical um, accounts of the three yeah. persons. At the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, it's a good account. It's just really strange. But, you know, no, then again, we're talking about God. We're talking about the one who's un, unbounded in being and, and immaterial and purely actual. So um, you should have expected strangeness, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it leads. Uh, we have to basically unlearn how we think as human beings in order to think back to God, which we can't fully do. And that's yeah. I think, when we get the, there, we're not going to be problem. comprehending. Yeah, right. we're just we're just we're just rooting out a lot of inadequate ways of thinking and speaking about the divine. Um, and the you know negative theology. There was a day when that was considered to be um, a, a noble and a good uh, and an important undertaking. Uh, I'm not sure that there's a, a taste for it nowadays, but uh, be, you know perhaps it's perhaps it's making a comeback. I don't know. Uh, moving on a little bit. Um, why um, why is the timelessness? Excuse me. Why is the timelessness of God tied to His uh, simplicity? And immutability. How would you articulate that idea? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because uh, divine timelessness uh, is a doctrine. I think. I think maybe I don't. Maybe I don't know. Most Christians, I think, would still say something like God's outside of time. Now you have you have uh, theologians and 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 philosophers arguing that that's um, incoherent and it's it's nonsensical and it, it really doesn't make any sense with the biblical record because God creates and involves himself as providential Lord with um, time and creatures in time uh, and therefore to be such a, a, an involved and loving father and creator um, wouldn't he have to be somehow participating uh, within the sphere of time with us. Uh, and you even have conservative uh, theolo- or traditionally conservative-ish theologians like John Frame, who would argue that um, God is timeless. Uh, but then in order to be, and, and he says that because he's because he confesses the Westminster Confession and he, ha- he has to say eternal in the, in the, and mean it in the old sense of timelessness. But someone like Frame really struggles with how such a God could be a mean 
immediately involved uh, in his own world if he didn't participate in the temporalness of his world. And so Frame will account for it by saying, well, God has a second existence, and the second existence is a temporal one. And, I, and it's also immutable and accessible and, and, and other things. Um, I think that's not – we don't want to go that route, um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that people will see problems in that um, and not go that route. Why do we say God is outside of time or not subject to um, before and after? And the, re- the way this connects to divine simplicity is this um, – the, and let me just kind of connect a few dots with it. Divine awe temporality or timelessness is really just a function of divine immutability. So what constitutes a thing temporal is the, um, if I can go with Aristotle on this, it's the counting of the movement between the before and the after. And that's really what time is. Time is a, time is a counting of motion between states of actuality, between states of being. Um, and we, the, mo- the easiest way for us to all sync up our watches is to find a single movement uh, in which we are all dissipating uh, to the, in the same kind of, at the same level. Um, and then we can all count the same motion together and we can, and we can even then devise um, we can devise n- numeric schemes by which to kind of carve this up and count it and get in and get in sync. Um, and so, um, I mean, the most obvious one for all of us is that we're all riding around um, our nearest star on the same rock, the third from the sun, uh, and we're all and we're all in motion together. And we're actually in a couple different motions at the same time. We're in axial motion um, as we all as we all ride around uh, a complete rotation uh, in a in a single day uh, and we've carved that into units of 24 hours and subdivided those into units of 60 and then you subdivided those 60 into units of 60 even further into our seconds uh, and we have all kind and what we're doing is we're actually just enumerating motion and the motion and movement change change that's the issue change as the earth changes uh, locomotively um, by by movement on its axis, we have enumerated that, counted and subdivided that, um, and we what we're doing is we're counting the motion between the before and the after. And then we have other ways of doing it. We're, we're not just in motion. We're also in, or we're not just in um, axial motion. We're also in orbital motion. We're all moving around our nearest star. One time, it takes about 365 or 366 axial rotations. That's how many axial rotations uh, can occur within a single orbital uh, movement around our nearest star. And so we then multiply our years and, and divide them that day that way. And then you can <clears throat> then you can subdivide those years uh, not just into days, but you can divide them into months. And then we can dispute with each other as to even how many months there are. If you go to Ethiopia, for instance. Um, Ethiopia has 13 months, uh, and then in Ethiopian tourism, it says 13 months of sunshine. Um, you know, this is so you, you can say, well, no, that's not right. But the thing is, you can figure that out. You can figure that out. You're just kind of um, they're just they're just counting it a little differently than you are. But we're all working. The reason we can all still sort of get together in time is we're all we're all participating in the same locomotion together. But this is what time does. Time enumerates movement from one state to another. 
but divine simple to get to divine simplicity well to get to immutability first immutability says um, that God is not susceptible to movements and states of being. There is no change in God. There is no what God was and is no longer or is and will become. Since there's no becoming, since there's no movement from one state of being to another in God because he's immutable, he doesn't lose a state of being, he doesn't acquire a state of being. Um, he is infinite, pure, unbounded actuality. Infinite, pure, unbounded actuality doesn't change. What could you add to it? It doesn't lack being. Um, if you took something from it, it would immediately cease to be infinite, unbounded actuality. Um, and so because we say that God is I am, uh, not I am plus I am not, but just I am, because we say that, um, and for other reasons, we say that God doesn't change. But if God doesn't change, then there's no there's no movement, you know, physical or metaphysical to enumerate, to count up. And so God is strictly timeless, not susceptible to counting of the before and the after, simply because there is no before and after, and there's no before and after because there's no loss of being and there's no uh, uh, acquisition of being. Moreover, because he's simple, there couldn't be a real distinction. If, if, if God were mutable, then he couldn't be simple because that which is mutable has pr principles both of is and is not. Like I'm mutable, I could lose the state of being seated. Like right now, I am... I am potentially standing, but not actually standing. And then when I stand up uh, in a few minutes, I will lose the state of being seated, and I will acquire a new state of being upright. And then if you cared to, not that you would, you could actually quantify or enumerate, you could count the motion between the state of being seated and the state of standing. And, you know, as you get older, that motion sort of slows down because, you know, <laughs> because you, you're not moving as quickly as you did. And so, but you could count it up. If God doesn't have state of being A really distinct from state of being B or any motion between those states of being because he's pure unbounded actuality, if that's the case, then timelessness, God outside of time, um, is a necessary entailment of those things. And I would argue um, that you could get to that conclusion uh, by looking at biblical texts that talk about God as being before you know all ages. I think the, I think the way that... Mm -hmm. um, the way that Paul puts it is that he's pros chronon ionion, um, before chron chronon, before chronological ages, before chronology. Well, I, I like to observe that before chronology can't be chronologically before chronology because then it would just be chronological. You know, in other words, this it can't. God, I ask my students sometimes, is God older than the world? And, and the answer is technically no. God isn't old and God isn't young. God is. Um, sometimes the Bible will speak about him this way. Daniel calls him the ancient of days. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I don't think the point is um, that God's really, really, really old. Uh, I think the point there is um, in a Semitic culture, you revere the older things. The older things are more deserving of your reverence than the younger. And so the oldest um, and the more ancient paths or the more ancient persons are the more revered ways the, or the more revered people. And then when it calls God the ancient of days, it's just a nice idiomatic way of saying the one who's deserving of reverence above all created things, above all ages. And so he calls him ancient, but he's not making a statement about God's age. Um, God isn't old and God isn't young. He's not older than the world or younger than the world or old and young um, just simply aren't the way he has his life. Um, he didn't have a youth. <laughs> um, he doesn't have middle or older age. Um, like things that are old, you should revere, revere him. And then scripture will use language of, of age or time or ancient 
Uh, but again, it's it's not using it to simply say, yeah, God's God's got time. You know, I think Elihu says in uh, Job thirty, I think it's Job thirty six, where he says, um, the number of his year, uh, he says, uh, the, the number of his years is unsearchable, um, or his, you know, no one can number his years, and it's not because you don't have enough, you know, fingers and toes to count that high. <laughs> um, it's because it's not actually susceptible to enumeration, and the reason his years aren't susceptible to enumerate, even years is a kind of Im- improper, kind of accommodated way of saying it. The reason his years can't be counted um, is because um, there's no quantification of them because there's no motion. His life is unbounded, infinite, actual. That's why you can't enumerate his life. That's why you can't quantify his life. Um, So it's something like that. But if God is simple and if God is immutable, then timelessness, eternal timelessness follows as a necessary implication. So if you're going to say that God really exists in time, that God really exists as a temporal or a temporally indexed entity, then you're going to have to say immediately that to that extent he is mutable and to that extent he is composed of parts. State A, really distinct state of being B, and then some of those states. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's the egg-headed approach. You could also just go to texts that say, um, before he gave birth to the earth of the world from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, uh, and Psalm 90 and <laughs> verse 2, and then you'd, you'd have it you know, kind of in a, in a nice, straightforward, biblical way. Um, or, you, or you could do what I did with it and kind of get to the same uh, conclusion, I think. So, <laughs> and that, I don't know if that answers your question, Sean. But <laughs> <laughs> No, that's, that's great right there. I think that goes to the notion, and it, you've talked about this before, um, about time being part of God's creation and not existing eternally as if God is somehow submitted to it. Right. Yeah. And so it gets kind of weird because you end up saying things like, um, there was no day before creation. Mm. Uh, because before, I mean, chronologically before I can talk about an ontological priority, God before creation in the, in the ontological, um, sense, um, but God before creation in the chronological sense, I can't, I can't get God on a timeline. And so, um, you know, if you think that there's such a thing as creation Eve, you're wrong. Uh, mm. Do you go out of after? In other words, there is no there is no chronological before chronology, because then it would just be chronology, and then it wouldn't be chronologically before chronology. Um, and so it ends up it ends up requiring us to say some really odd some really odd things, but things that I think are um, if you believe in a doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Um, and if you believe in that absolute creator-creature distinction um, in that respect, then it shouldn't be a problem. I, I think the thing with time is it, both Augustine um, – uh, many people have said this, so it's, but Augustine and then Herman Bovink will say the same thing, that, that God doesn't create technically in time. That almost sounds like time's just kind of out there waiting for some creation to be tossed into it. But you got after. He doesn't create in time as much as more proper. We sh- properly we should say he creates with time. Uh, that is to say um, that time is concomitant it, with the creation of anything mutable. So as soon as mutable being is, then time is. That is to say, it's susceptible to the counting of the before and the after. As soon as you have something mutable. So that time comes at time isn't something God doesn't create time independent of mutable things. Time is created concomitantly with mutable things. And it's just simply um, that susceptibility to enumeration of the before and the after that necessarily comes as part of the package deal of being mutable. Um, So as soon as he makes something that is changeable or mutable, um, then time exists as a concomitant with that thing. Um, and so we can think of, so it's not like he's like, oh, I'm going to create some planets and some stars and some birds and some clouds and some time. 
Do you get what I'm after? In other words, time isn't in that time doesn't sort of exist among the created things in that way. It exists with all of those things, just in so much as they are susceptible to any change whatsoever. Mm. And that kind of leads us into our our next topic on the incarnation. Um, You know, timelessness Mm. as it relates to the second person of the Trinity entering the world. Um, how do we reconcile divine simplicity with uh, John one fourteen? It says the word became flesh, and that seems to imply a change, becoming, changing into something other than he was. How do we reconcile that? Yeah, you got. See, you guys are going through for the two central mysteries of the faith. You, you've got divine <laughs> simplicity. You know, I love divine simplicity, and then you're throwing Trinity and incarnation at it, um, which is which is great. Listen, every Christian should be asking those questions. Um, we should want to know how our theology pop proper um, and things we say about God, like simplicity or pure actuality, um, cohere with our with our confession of those mysteries. Uh, the Word became mm-hmm. flesh. Um, so, I guess the 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 sort of straightforward answer to that is um, I think we should observe that the use of the word become doesn't necessarily entail mutation. Mm. Normally it does. If I could put it like this way, every mutation is a becoming, but Mm -hmm. is every becoming a mutation? And I'm not trying to be kind of like, I'm not trying to be a sophist here um, uh, or, or, or you know, sort of bedazzle you with word games. It's not. It's not <laughs> that. It's. It's just simply um, this. If you can go, so that's John one fourteen. If you go up to John one three, uh, where it talks about the word being the one, by, you know, everything that came into being came uh, came into being through him. Nothing that came to be is from him. So that the word is the absolute creator. The logos is the absolute creator of all things. The first thing I think we should observe about creation ex nihilo is that, strictly speaking, creation ex nihilo itself, the becoming of creation as an absolute coming to be, is is itself a becoming that is not a mutation. That is to say, there's nothing that undergoes change. Changeable things come to be, but nothing changeable changes. Do you get what I'm after? In the coming, to, in the absolute coming to be of changeable things. Um, and so there is no, I mean, to put it in a kind of pointy-headed way, um, there is no um, every change involves something that goes through it, and the something that goes through change goes through change by by um, by moving from one state of being into another, and every change is actually the movement from one state of being to another. But ni- nothing, if if we believe in creation out of nothing, nothing isn't a state of being. Do you get what I'm after? So that the terminus mm-hmm. aquo. Mm. The terminus, uh, the term, the term from which in creation is nothing, and nothing isn't actually a terminus a quo. Nothing isn't actually a something that can change. Do you get what I'm because nothing isn't actually a thing, and so in creation ex nihilo, you don't actually have something there to change. You, you have nothing, and nothing mm-hmm. isn't changeable. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> because nothing isn't. <laughs> because nothing isn't. So nothing can't be mutated. Nothing isn't a state of being that can enter another state of being it's actually exactly not that it's 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 a it's not a state of anything to say nothing of being mm. um and so in creation ex nihilo you have this absolute coming to be of all things not god but that absolute coming to be which john uses the term agenata uh in john 1 3 to describe that coming to be that came to be by the words uh making it so um that coming to be is a becoming that is not a mutation it's not an alteration of. It's an absolute coming to be of things that are alterable, but it's not itself an alteration. Hmm. 
I'm not I'm not submit suggesting for a moment that the incarnation of the word, the word became flesh, um, is exactly like that. I, I'm not saying that. I'm just simply trying to lay down a marker here and say, um, not every reference, even in scripture to becoming necessarily and automatically entails mutation. Mm. And what I want to suggest, and I want to say that that's for different reasons. That's not the case in John 1, 14. And for different reasons, namely the ones I just um, spelled out, that's not the case in John 1, 3. And so when we say that God, uh, so that when we say with respect to the word becoming, as soon as you hear the word becoming, you think change. And what I want to say is whether we're talking about the incarnation or not, um, that's just not, that's just not so. Um, there is a becoming, the absolute coming to be of the world by an act of divine fiat that is not a mutation, that is not a change. And so as soon as, as soon, and I'm just trying to put that onto the record simply to say, um, as soon as you say there are, be, there, it is possible to conceive uh, or to predicate a becoming that isn't a changing, then immediately you have to kind of modulate the, you can't, you then can no longer make the argument, well, it says the word became flesh, so therefore, therefore mutation. Because mutation isn't strictly entailed in becoming. It just happens to be the case that almost all the becomings you've ever known are mutations. Um, because that's, that's, but that's a particular way of becoming, becoming via mutation. But what I'm submitting to you is John 1.3 already talks about a becoming that is not a mutation. And John 1.14 talks about another becoming that is not a mutation, um, and all, albeit a, a rather different one. So how to say this? Um, how did the word become flesh? I, I think two things we need to say this isn't. Uh, again, back to a kind of our mm -hmm. negative theology. The first is we want to say that this is not a change uh, via subtraction. Um, that is to say um, that um, the word, you know, to think of like Philippians 2, 7, that um, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. That this is not a hollowing out, a suspending of operations operations or a divesting of attributes on the part of the divine word. The, depart, the, the divine word doesn't unactualize <laughs> anything that he is as person or as divine, um, as begotten of the father, as, as person subsisting begotten of the father. Nothing that he is as such um, is lost to him uh, in that moment. No, no glory, no benediction, no anything that he is, um, is given up. Um, and I know sometimes people point to Second Corinthians eight nine, which says um, that he bitch for our sake became poor. You, you know this text, um, and it, mm -hmm. and some will say that that meant that some richness he had was lost to him. Actually, I don't think that he lost richness uh, in becoming. We should better say that he assumed poverty. He didn't lose, mm. lose ri the, the way he became poor was not by unbecoming rich, but it was rather by assuming poverty to himself. Particularly, that looks like form of the servant. So a lot will say, well, he be he became poor by not becoming rich. Look, if I became poor, I would have to not be rich. Well, whatever. I mean, we all of us are rich uh, in in the West, um, it, I mean, mm. comparatively. Um, so I would I would have to become poor um, by losing something. Um, mm. But what we should say in the incarnation is that the word that the word uh, who being although being rich became poor not by losing his riches but by assuming our poverty um, by assume so the second but then the second thing comes in well shouldn't so I guess what we're saying then is that he didn't 
he didn't take on flesh or take on a human nature by divesting himself of some actuality of being. Then, then you would have parthood. Then you would have mutation. Then you would have temporality. And by that way, that temporality wouldn't just characterize the son qua incarnate. That temporality would characterize the son qua divine son because it would be actually mm. as divine that he underwent this change. And so he would be temporal, immutable, and, and multi-parted. Um, as divine if he lost something in the incarnation. There's a trend uh, right now to say, well, then maybe we should say in losing something, that's what um, the nickname given to that is canoticism, canoticist Christology, um, and I won't get into that at the moment. Instead of losing something, perhaps he became flesh by adding something to himself, by adding, mm -hmm. and you'll find this explanation, uh, this is kind of the standard conservative explanation right now, um, but I would argue that in terms of a, a metaphysical account of things, it's, it's no less problematic in, in one respect than the subtraction explanation. Um, mm. Historically, this is not how theologians explained the assumption of flesh as addition. In fact, many uh, explicitly, John Owen among, uh, among, the, among our Paedo-Baptist friends, John Gill among the Baptists, um, and Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, all who's who's not even a Protestant, all say <laughs> that the word added to himself absolutely nothing in the incarnation. And so you have the you have the, the word became flesh, he didn't mutate, he didn't change, he didn't lose something, he didn't add. So I guess there was no real incarnation. Um, and some have actually accused the classical theist position of, as kind of requiring that he couldn't really incarnate. Um, <clears throat> and yet there is, excuse me, <clears throat> there's another way to, art to articulate this, um, which is to say that he didn't add to himself, but he did assume to himself or ha he newly relates to himself um, something in creation. In particular, and I'll I'll give you my I'll give you my very I'll break this down as best I can. Um, every human nature, which is um, composed of a reasonable soul and body, uh, you know, uh, form and matter. Um, every human nature is composed of a reasonable form and body, um, or a rational soul and a body, and yet every human nature exists and only exists um, by virtue of someone who has that nature. Right. Um, so uh, if I were to say um, if I were to say, hey, I was um, even if I were to talk to my wife afterward and say, she said, how the, how the podcast go? And I'd say, oh, yeah, I was talking with um, I was talking with a, a couple, uh, you know, rational souls and bodies. Um, and I, I suppose both <laughs> of you have your rational souls and bodies engaged in this conversation. I do. Um, and, you know, she'd be like, where are they? You know, and, and I should say uh, it was Daniel and Sean. But um, what if I said, oh. It, it wasn't anyone in particular. It was just a, it was just a couple. But she would say, well, who? And what if I said, oh, there was no who. There were just rational souls and bodies. And you'd be like, okay, you know, call the call the psycho psychological clinic and get me checked in. Because like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like uh, this is weird. Because that's actually the thing about rational souls and bodies. You never actually just bump into them all by themselves. They're always someones. Do, do you get what I'm after? There's always a who. Or what we would say, a person um, in mm. the older language, a hypostasis, uh, a rational hypostasis is a human. There are divine ones and angelic ones and human ones. Um, and so every rational soul and body, um, which is the essence of humanity, um, is always the rational soul and body of somebody. And in fact, without person, without hypostasis, without a divine, without a human, per well, without a person, 
no human nature concretely exists. And in fact, in fact, um, subsistence mm -hmm. is given to rational souls and bodies via the hypostasis, but via the someone who has it. And so, mm -hmm. like in the case of us three, um, James, Daniel, and Sean, we each are particular instances of a, of a human rational soul and body. Um, and that rational soul and body happens to be the rational soul and body of three human persons. And so that our, our human personhood <clears throat> supplies the what is necessary for our rational souls and bodies to actually exist in the real world. What we're, what we're saying in the incarnation is um, <clears throat> that what the person of the son, and I'll come back to the whole question of immutability and all that, what the person of the, what the divine person of the son does, the logos, eternally begotten of the father, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the father, um, John 1, 18, he as divine person supplies the hypostasis to this human nature, rational soul and body conceived in the virgin's womb. So that a rational soul, a human rational soul and body needs a hypostasis in order to concretely exist. Now the question is, will it be a created hypostasis, a created person who supplies the necessary, um, the, the, the personhood needed for the existence of that rational soul and body, or will it be another person? Uh, and in the case of everyone, not Jesus of Nazareth, the personhood needed for the subsistence of their rational soul and body is supplied by a created who, a created person. Whereas in the case of the person of Christ Jesus, the personhood is supplied by none other than the second person of the Godhead. The principle, the, the, the needed hypostasis is not a create. So Christ is not a human person. He's a divine person who is a human. Does that make sense? Because mm. it's not a created person. He's a person who is human, but not a human person. He's not a created person. An uncreated divine person supplies the needed who-ness. I'm not even sure if who-ness is a word, but you get what I'm after. Supplies the needed personhood, hypostasis, for that created rational soul and body, that human rational soul and body um, to actually exist. So what's happening in the incarnation is this. The person of the word by an action that is in fact the action of all three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit mm -hmm. in inseparable operation sovereignly relate or draw into a dependent relationship that rational soul and body conceived in the virgin's womb. They bring it immediately into a, into a union with the person of the Son. Here's the point, though. The person of the son isn't augmented or actualized or made to be in some new way. Rather, he meant to be <laughs> that rational soul and body. So the newness in the incarnation is not a newness proper to the son. It's a newness proper to the nature that receives its who-ness from the son. Mm. And so I can say in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, not by changing his son, not by mutating his son, not by augmenting his son with new actuality, not by diminishing actuality from his son, but rather by relating to his son in an entirely unique and unparalleled manner, a human rational soul and body such that his son is the who that is that man. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is and what I want to say is in relating something created to the son in a, an entirely unique manner, the incarnation. The son is not being changed by the human nature. The son is not being added to. And by the way, if he's infinite, he can't add to himself. Let's just get that mm -hmm. down clear right now. I mean, that which is infinite fullness of being doesn't augment itself with anything. 
there's nothing, there's no actuality in the in the created human nature of Jesus that doesn't pre-exist in Jesus as divine. So there is no actuality of being lacking to the and this is my problem actually by saying if you say that he he uh, took on flesh by adding to himself. All addition requires privation or paucity of being as its precondition, as its foundation. You can't add to that which is unbounded. You can't add to that which is infinitely actual. You can only add to the, you can only make a real addition to that which lacks actuality of being. To say, and this is actually my problem with the modern the modern language saying he he didn't subtract from himself he added to himself no he didn't subtract from himself or add to himself he assumed to himself in a new relation he re- newly related something created to himself in such a way that the person of the son supplies the concrete hypostasis needed for the subsistence of that human nature and it's that re- that hypostatic union it's that relation that explains why that which was conceived in the virgin's womb in terms of the question of who is none other than the eternal son of God, because he's supplying mm-hmm. the who-ness to it. But to supply the principle of hypostasis, the, the who-ness needed for that concrete subsistence of that human nature, does not require that he lose or gain anything. It only require that something in creation be newly related to him. And so you already have, uh, like you have things like this, like in Isaiah, now this isn't hypostatic union, but like in Isaiah 63, um, God will describe his mercies toward Israel and he'll talk about the event of the Exodus and he'll narrate and the way the prophet narrates that for us is um God will say um and so he it will say and so he became their savior he became their savior are we to suppose that something not actual in God was then actualized at that moment in time if that's the case God is an infinitely pure act he's not unbounded in being He's composed of act and passive potency. He has the potential to be the savior that he isn't. Some event in time has to be the event that actualizes that potentiality of being in him. And he has to become ontologically what he was not. And then he's not unchangeable and he's not simple and he's not timeless and he's not purely actual. And by the way, if he's not any of those things, he's not the absolute first cause of being. Mm. And so how do, and so how do we say, because something, because the things composed of parts are, are uh, made to be. Um, by principles more fundamental than themselves. So what should we say? That language is being used there to describe a new relation of something in creation, namely the people of Israel, to God and a, a new manner of their relation to God. Not only is he their maker, but now in the event of the Exodus, by his sovereign power and by relating them to himself in this new way, he is now their savior. When it says he became their savior, the newness lies in their relationship to him not in him, but the way the text says it is, so he became their savior. The word became flesh. The newness, the newness lies not in the word qua word or in the word qua divine. The newness lies in that human nature that now derives its entire hypostasis uh, and its subsistence in being from its relation to the person of the word. So in the one case of Jesus of Nazareth, you have a divine who, not a human who, but nevertheless, a true human nature, nature, rational soul and body. And I think if we articulate now, that that probably makes the incarnation. I called it a central mystery. Um, that's in large part exactly why it is a mystery. Mm. Not because that's not believable, but because that's really strange and unparalleled. Um, and it's strange and unparalleled because of simplicity and pure actuality and and timelessness, and because of the creator creature distinction. But I think we can look at John one fourteen and say. You know the way Donald McLeod in his book on the Person of Christ looks at that, he says we have to say, we have to say that I mean it says the Word became flesh, so we have to say some you know something changed for the Word. 
I mean, the word had to undergo some sort of change for him to become flesh. Two things to that. Um, unless there, unless not all becoming means change, which I think we've already said. Uh, and unless there's a way to talk about, to say God became or the word became without necessarily entailing some kind of or any sort of logical mutation in the word or in the case of Isaiah 63 in God. Um, I guess that's what I'd do with it. Maybe that's too too overwhelming and it probably does need some more sophisticated elaboration, but that's the gist of it anyway. No, that's very helpful. Um, I think especially talking about where that personhood comes from. um, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's consistent with what the Council of Chalcedon taught, that the two natures of Christ are unified in that one person. Right. Um, And I think they would have been consistent with Nicaea in terms of uh, God's indivisibleness. That's right. No, very good. That's a great question. Those are hard. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad yeah, I'm actually, I'm not, <laughs> no, it's fine. And I'm, and I'm, my answers are what they are, but I'm thrilled that that's actually kind of getting back in the conversation. Cause it just seems like mm. for too long, we've been satisfied with, um, he subtracted to himself. No, he added to himself. Oh yeah. That's gotta be the explanation. And in fact, it's just a whole lot stranger than either of those <laughs> options. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, but the other pe- people knew it. Like John Gill said, John Gill knows this, uh, and he's really good on it in his uh, body of divinity. John Owen is just explicit on it. Thomas Aquinas is excellent on it. Um, mm-hmm. So, in other words, the, these things were used to be said, um, and it's 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 good that it's good that we're finding opportunities to say them again because they need to be said. Mm. So, um, going off on uh, other. Um, passages or Bible verses that people might use to try to undermine the, uh, the doctrine of God's immutability or divine simplicity. Uh, how are we to understand passages in scripture that describe God as repenting or changing his mind? Um, example of uh, God changing his mind in Isaiah 38, where Hezekiah was told by God that he would die from an illness, but then after pleading with God, Hezekiah is spared. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, you, or you could throw into that, um, uh, Exodus uh, 38, 14, I think the NASB just translates it. And so God changed his mind. <laughs> so, you know, what do you do with verses like, or, or, uh, or you could, yeah. And I could, I mean, so you could, you could, in terms of Bible passages, uh, speaking about God as um, being in, as, as uh, being in time, you know, using temporal indexicals to describe his operations, for instance, um, you know, God did this. And then, you know, anytime, anytime you read that, it just sounds like, wow, his agency seems to be like right here in the, in the temporal world. Um, same thing with like passions. Uh, and we won't get into impassibility. That's fine. But um, what do you do? How do you say God doesn't undergo change um, of any sort or have anything actualized in his being? And then square that with something like Genesis six, six and seven that says God, you know, God was grieved in his heart and regretted that he'd made man upon the earth. In other words, does God does God after the fact begin to think better of or regret what he did before? Or you could say First Samuel fifteen, where he says, um, "I regret that I've made Saul king." He says that twice mm. uh, in that passage, and then right in the middle of that, Samuel says that God is not uh, like a man who should change his mind or have regret. <laughs> so you've got there. There you have a passage that says God says, "I regret." Samuel says he's not a God that he should have regret, and then it says, uh, "And so and God regretted that he'd made Saul king." <laughs> I, I think I think what you can see, right, unless you just want to say, oh, the Bible, the Bible's just a whole big mashup of incoherence, which I, let us not say that. Let us mm, not say amen. that. Um, I think what we should say is um, that the Bible speaks to us in in more or less literal ways. All of the Bible's language is anthropomorphic just simply by the fact that it is language. 
Um, I mean, it's, it's all anthropomorphic just simply because it's propositional language. Um, it's a system of sounds and signs communicating knowledge in propositional, linear, multi-parted ways. That's creaturely. I mean, the whole manner of the Bible, just because it is king, is already anthropomorphized. Uh, moreover, um, within it, some, some things that Scripture says anthropomorphically to us, but literally, like God is love, um, can be said literally. The the statement God is love, it, it it's, it's not that there's God plus love, so there's still anthropomorphism in the way we speak, um, but God literally is love. But when we talk about God's, um, for instance, and I'll just come to this, with I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to the change question uh, from the Isaiah passage. But when we talk about, when the Bible talks about um, God's um, upset tummy, you know, his indigestion or you know whatever it is, his bowels turned over within him, I think three times it speaks that way. <laughs> Um, when it speaks about God's nostrils being inflamed, when it speaks about God's um, uh, feathered wings uh, and his grief and his shins, okay, you know, all, all things, and I guess what I'm trying to get after is the Bible speaks, and I'll grab a, a line here from Herman Bovink, the, Bible's, the Bible is anthropomorphic through and through. Um, the Bible speaks to us in human language, and it, abs- it is absolutely liberal in the way that it plunders uh, the imagery of creation and the language of cre- creation to describe uh, God and his purposes and his operation to us. But it, it also gives us um, the resources to discern which of those we should take literally and which of those we should take metaphorically. Um, so, for instance... Um, you know, if you go to Isaiah, uh, if you go to like the sons of Korah, and I think it's, I think it's like Isaiah 45 or thereabouts, um, where they, they cry out, you know, how long will you sleep, O Lord? Why do you sleep? Arouse yourself, awake, you know, and then you go to another Psalm that says the Holy One of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. So mm-hmm. if you, if you take everything in a hyper literalist fashion, then you could use the the psalm from the sons of Korah to devise a doctrine of, you know, when you devise like divine attributes like good, wise, loving, just, true, and eternal, why not just throw in sleepy? You know what I'm after? Like, God is good, wise, loving, just, true, eternal, and sleepy sometimes. You know, you know what I mean? The, the, the attribute of divine narcolepsy. But you don't do that. You don't do that. And you have probably really good theological reasons for not doing that. Uh, and I suppose you do it because you're not because you don't actually think that the sons of Korah are speaking literally. I don't even think the sons of Korah think the sons of Korah are speaking literally when they say that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Speaking from an observational standpoint, like one who's, okay, here's the thing about people who sleep. um, They don't immediately and powerfully involve themselves in what's going on around them. And God's powerful operation is desired by these people who suffer for his sake all day long, and they are pleading for him to act powerfully upon, uh, uh, for his name's sake and for their sake against their enemies, um, and he's not acting, he's, his operation is not forthcoming to defend them, and so like one who sleeps, who doesn't operate, they use that language to address themselves to him, but not for mm. the purpose of devising the doctrine of divine sleepiness. Um, and so you can discern how the Bible can use um, improper language. And by improper, I don't mean disallowable, but I just mean language that doesn't properly apply to God. All language about God's eyelids isn't literal. God doesn't have eyes. Um, you know, he he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Um, and yet, does he see with ears and eyes? Well, the Bible will talk about God's ears and eyes, but he doesn't. he doesn't really have like a kind of like, tissuey orb set inside of a socket in a head um by you know with a with a with an iris and a pupil and 
like that. And he doesn't actually have like ears affixed on the side of his head to capture sound that tickle little inner bones inside or so as to, you know, after, but the Bible will absolutely use language like that uh, again, because seeing is how we know things. So to describe God as, as knowing, it will say he sees all. In fact, that's actually what Providence sees. The one who, the one who foresees or sees two things. Um, it will use that language because seeing is how we know to describe God as all knowing. It will use the mechanism of human know perceiving or discovering, but God doesn't have eyes and he doesn't make new discoveries um, because no one informs him. No one's his counselor. No one makes him know. And there's nothing in God that's made to be. So I think to this point about um, Hezekiah and God changing his mind, it, it depends on, on. So in that case, he, Hezekiah was told that he was going to die. Um, just like um, just like uh, Jonah told Nineveh that in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And yet on day 41, it was still there. <laughs> um, and as mm-hmm. far as Hezekiah goes, what was he given? Like 15 more years? I think something mm-hmm. like that. God, gave, God added 15 years to his life. So that the um, so that I think the best way to understand that is that the threat of death in the case of Nineveh or in the case of Hezekiah um, was, in fact, um, conditional that was not that it was not that did not rise to the level of an absolute promise or a prophecy um it was it was a it was a conditional threat um and i would argue that um it was conditioned upon the repentance um or the prayer of hezekiah in the one case or of nineveh in the other case and i would argue um that in fact the fulfillment or non-fulfillment of the condition falls within the 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 divine timeless decree for all things um so that from the human standpoint it's narrated as um do this and live, don't do this and die. But the doing or not doing itself is included within the timeless decree of God so that God is not, so that when God, if I can put it like this, does God ever change his dealings with us? And the answer is yes, depending on what you meet, where you locate the change, there can be a change in God's way. That is to say in his providential dealings, you're under his wrath and that's demonstrated against you. And then subsequently you're under his grace and that's demonstrated to you. Um, So where is the change? The change is in the order of demonstration, not within the operation of the demonstrator. God can unchangeably and does unchangeably from all eternity will changes in the manifestation of himself and in the execution of his providence. His providential operation as it is in him is unchangeable. His his providential operation as it terminates in the order of things made undergoes change. In so much as we speak about God from our standpoint, from the side of receiving those changes, we can speak about God. We can say, well, he parted the Red Sea waters and then he caused them to uh, come together again on top of the Egyptians. Um, And we can see that there was a change in the his providential effects. What we don't want to do is say there must have been a change in his mind or there must have been a change intrinsically in God and his operation. Like that's how it is in me. Um, if there's a change in my dealings, it almost always corresponds to a change in my thinking or my judgment or so that my the external, the, the, the things that change in the things I change also correspond to changes in me, the changer. But that's not the case in God. God changes things without undergoing change. He changelessly wills and brings about all changes. And some of those are through conditional uh, threats, like you will die, get your house in order, <laughs> like he says to Hezekiah, or in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. Again, those are designed by God to spur prayer in the one case or repentance in the other case. Um, and even that prayer or repentance um, is from him, through him, and to him. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that gets at your question. That's that's a big, wide ranging. But the Bible speaks in some very non literal ways uh, about God. 
I would, that's where I would put grief. That's where I put all changes of mind. That's where I would put all references to God's body. The real, this is the question people have. Then how do you know? Like, how do you know which one's literal and which one isn't? And there, there really is one demental key that has to be kept in mind, which is um, if your interpretation of this passage requires that God's being be caused to be by another, if there's some actuality or state of is in God that requires something not God make it be, then don't, if your literal interpretation requires that, like if he had a body, that would be the case. If he experienced grief intrinsically, that would be the case. If he underwent any sort of change of mind, that would be the case. Something not God would have to account for the new state of, of being, that is to say, his new thoughts uh, in God. Anything that requires God be susceptible to causal determination of some actualizing principle, then, then abandon your literal interpretation. Because what we need to do, because that, that's where you lose the creator-creature distinction. Um, God is the maker of all, not the made-to-be. As soon as your interpretation requires that he be made-to-be or caused by principles of being more fundamental than himself, um, it, if, you're, if your interpretation un-God's God, um, don't interpret it literally. So he really doesn't have up, he doesn't really have up strolls, um, grief in his heart, um, or changes of mind. Though he can use all of that language to describe, to, to speak to us truthfully about himself under a mode or manner of being that isn't literally true. Now, it's so, interesting it some, about some that. Thoughts. Yeah. Um, that going back to the open theism discussion, if God does indeed have the ability to change and learn, as the open theist would say, then um, the changer would have the ability to change in relation to his creation. But the immutable decree necessitates that he does it. And I think that's why you have to have those. Part of the reason you have to have those two together with regards to God's immutability. They go hand in hand. Yeah, and the open theists, I mean, they hate the immutable decree. Um, yep. they, uh, they have all sorts of, you know, the, the, the common objections that we've all heard against that idea. Um, but it really, but really, what's what's problematic in open theism isn't just simply that they want God to be less controlling, though that's certainly what they want. They also, they they understand, I think, more clearly than some of their critics like Bruce Ware and uh, or John Frame that in actually in order for God to be um, what he is, he has to be able to undergo or receive new actuality. In the case of like his mind, if God learns something new, then there's a state of, in other words, there's God knowing, that's a state of being, God knowing, um, and then there's something that caused God to know. And if he learned it, then it's something not, in other words, something not his, not his knowing had to cause his knowing to be. Uh, and in that case, then you have to have a God who's composed of parts. There has to be actuality for him to be at all. And there has to be passive potency in order for him to be in some new way. And so you can't have divine simplicity and you can't have immutability. Um, and you can't really have aseity. You can't have God's self-sufficiency because you have to have God susceptible to something, not himself actualizing something in him. Um, and what's interesting to me is actually those seem to be the very things that um, a lot of the evangelical critics of open theism were actually willing to concede to open theism. Uh, which is really bizarre because that's if you want to get right down to the rotten heart and core of open theism, it's that their God is a finite, mutable being susceptible to causes. Um, I mean, that's that's what's so awful about it. And that's the like very me. thing <laughs> like, yeah, like you yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or if you believed in like like Nordic mythology, like like, uh, you know, like 
uh, Odin or something like this. I mean, this is these are these are these kind of mutable entities that are changeable. And maybe it's like Odin without a body or Thor without a body, which would be kind of like less exciting as a movie. But you get what I'm after. <laughs> like that's that's kind of your theism. And I think that's the problem with. And I'll go back to Ed Fazer on this when he says that you know no simplicity atheism. I think that's really what you get. I mean, that's that's what's so rotten about open theism but what's what's bizarre mm. is that was that was precisely where the their their evangelical critics were willing to make concessions to them uh and it's you know at this point i i'm not sure that we're completely um this is a debate that is going on um it will continue to go on but it, it, it needs to be carried through to the end we need to be we, we need to get very clear as to whether we are willing to willing to uh, agree to disagree on that kind of thing um, or set down a marker that God is without parts, and we mean that in some full and mm-hmm. robust sense. Um, other, otherwise, otherwise, uh, you know, serious problems. Mm. Amen. Amen. Wow, lots of good stuff we talked about today. Um, and kind of in closing, Dr. Dolzell, uh, what are some helpful resources that people can turn to as they study divine simplicity? Uh, I, w- I would say the standard discussion in any of the older uh, uh, theologies, uh, Herman Bovink's discussion in Reform Dogmatics, uh, Volume 2 on God and Creation, uh, is very good. It's very classical. I think we should observe as Protestants that this is not a Protestant doctrine. Um, it's, a, it's a doctrine all Protestants historically held and should hold, but it's, it doesn't originate with us. It's just part of that tradition that we carried over. Um, so Bavink will show you this doctrine, but he'll connect it to medievals and fathers. Um, and it's a, it's a good kind of concise and tight discussion of it. Um, you f- you'll find it all, I think the discussion also in Francis Turretin's Institutes of Electric Theology, if you want another Protestant source, uh, is very good on divine simplicity. Um, though those are those are challenging. I, I've I've written on it. Probably the most popular version of it that I've put out there is in a Table Talk magazine article, just called "The Simplicity of God." And if someone just Google's mm. Table Talk Simplicity of God, uh, I'm I'm sure they'll find that discussion. But I would encourage everyone, if you can if you can bring yourself to do it, to find your way back to Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, uh, Book One. Uh, question three, all eight articles, and you can just fu- just just Google it online. Aquinas Summa full text. Uh, the English Dominican Fathers translation is free, available online. It's a great translation, um, and those those sort of eight articles of that question. In my in my own research, anyway, that becomes the kind of standard go to account that you find in Reformed Orthodoxy uh, in the mm-hmm. 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and so, if you kind of want to go to, not that it originates with Aquinas, he's just maybe its most sophisticated defender and explainer. Um, then, uh, sum, uh, summa, or summa Theologiae uh, one three is what you're looking for. But again, it's kind of stout stuff, and the language, the grammar is gonna you're gonna have to find kind of fight your way into the grammar, but um, it's it's worth the fight. So I'll, I'll leave it. Oh, and one modern one modern uh, source, Stephen Duby's book, Divine Simplicity: A Dogmatic Account. Um, uh, it's long, it's scholarly, uh, and for pastors especially, thirty uh, something dollars in the paperback form, and it's it's worth uh, it's worth owning. It's a it's a very fine book uh, on the topic. So I'll leave it with well, those. Th- <laughs> well, thank you, Doctor Dolzal, for joining us today. It's been a very fruitful um, discussion. Um, if you want to get more into Dr. Dolezal's works, all that is in God is his um, standard published work. He, I think you, is there, what is the name of your doctrinal thesis, Dr. Dolezal? The, uh, the, the earlier book was, was God without parts. Uh, and That's right. so God, God without parts is the more, um, 
I suppose it's the more it's the more egghead <laughs> more eggheaded uh, version getting into divine simplicity. But. Okay, well, this is a very good primer in divine simplicity. Highly recommend it. Um, and, but with that, we will close today. And thank you again, Dr. Dolezal, for joining us. Daniel, thank Sean, you. thanks for having me. Appreciate it.